Heavenly Father, can we just give this day to you? We just thank you for all that you've done for us and that you're just so willing to open up your arms to us, even in the midst of our shortcomings, our failures, the times that we just turn our backs on you. And Lord, just just fall short of your glory, God, that you continually just open your arms to us and just welcome us back to you, Lord. We just thank you for that patience and that grace and that love that just knows no bounds, Lord. And uh, Lord, I just uh, want to lift up everyone here. You know, you know what they're going through. You know the struggles, the uh, anxiety, or the this, the the pressure of this world can put upon people, Lord. I just ask that you would just grant them peace and confidence and understanding in the midst and in the light of all of that that goes around, Lord. And I just pray that we would just be people who turn and run to you in the midst of hardship and trial, Lord, and just remember your goodness in light of everything that is going on in this world. I just want to lift up the children who will be in Kids City today, Lord. I just ask that your presence would be there among them as well. And uh, we just thank you again for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys may be seated. Uh, if you have any kids that would like to send off to Kids City, now is the time to do that, and uh, we will begin shortly. How's everyone's week been? <laughs> good, good. No, no, not so good. No one's saying anything, so usually that's not a good sign. Uh, I hope everyone is doing well. Um, it's uh, winter came sooner than I wanted, but that's okay. <laughs> it's still a joy. I actually got our Christmas tree up. We haven't put the stuff on it yet. Um, Katie's kind of pulled me into that. My parents are always like, never before the Thanksgiving, and my dad always takes it down like the day after Christmas. You know, <laughs> I was like, geez, dad, just <laughs> can we enjoy it a little bit? Uh, but uh, nonetheless, um, if we got snow, we might as well enjoy what God has given us, right? Amen? Amen. All right, well, uh, last week uh, we began our study into the sermons of the prophet Amos. Um, his uh, book is broken down into really kind of three different categories, and we, so we began the second category with the sermons in chapters 3 and 4. And uh, while you may see some harsh discipline of the impending judgment of the Israelites, uh, it's also very important to know and to remember that God's character is also uh, revealed in light of the judgment. He is long-suffering, uh, and he's very quick to relent upon the judgment of his people, um, as we're going to see this morning as well. Uh, God has promised that the Israelites will fall into captivity at the hands of the nation Assyria uh, if they do not turn from their sin. Uh, the Assyrians were a brutal people, and uh, hearing that judgment upon you, you'd think that uh, you'd be quick to return to the Lord, but nonetheless, they continued to ignore the words of the prophets, and they continued to dwell and live in their sin. Um, but before their judgments and their captivity to the Assyrians was to happen, God actually sends these lesser series of adversities, if you will, upon the nation in hopes of drawing them back to himself. 
Now, when looking at this uh, from our perspective, it may seem rather harsh, the judgment that's upon the nation of Israel. Uh, but we must understand that they had turned their backs on the Lord for generations. This isn't just, uh, you know, it's been one week and now God's saying, okay, that's it, you need to come back to me. This is a generational uh, lifestyle, as, as if you will. Um, they had continued to fall away from the Lord more and more each and every generation. Uh, and finally, God had seen enough of their, uh, uh, their sin against him. And so God had been slow in, in his anger and willing to relent from judgment for a long time, but there does come a point uh, when discipline is required for the nation of Israel to recognize their sin and return to the Lord. Uh, Revelation 3.19 uh, is very similar to what we're going to study this morning. It says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Hebrews 12 also has a very similar message. It says, And you have forgotten the exhortation, uh, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so the judgment and the discipline, as it would be, that fell upon uh, Israel was not born out of hatred, right? It wasn't born out of this, okay, I've seen enough, I'm done with you guys, here's your, uh, you know, here's your discipline that you've asked for. But no, it's born out of a heart of love. He's, he's, he's drawing them back, his, his hope is to draw back the heart of his people to him. And we're going to really um, touch on that this morning. And in verse 12 of, of chapter 4 from last week, Amos makes a statement that should really make us all pause and question ourselves. He says, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And so the question for us is, you know, that we asked last week, and if you weren't here, hopefully you can ponder it this week, is are you prepared to meet God? You know, are you spiritually ready to meet the Lord? And so if you're unsure, then the message today may be for you. Uh, if you are sure that you're ready, this is still a wonderful message that helps us uh, in light of everything to draw back to the heart of God um, and, and just to be encouraged in light of that. And so we're going to be uh, in Amos chapter 5 today. We're going to go through the entirety of the chapter. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, if you have not yet turned to Amos chapter 5, now's a good time to do it because we're going to be reading <laughs> in it. Uh, Amos chapter 5. Starting in verse 1, he says, Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. So what is a lamentation? We see that in the very first opening sentence in chapter 5. He mentions that this is a lamentation. Uh, the message from Amos to the nation of Israel is a lament. And a lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Uh, oftentimes it's put to a song or is put, it, put at least poetically. Uh, and this was very common uh, for the nation and the people of Israel back in this time to express their emotions uh, to the Lord. In fact, you might be surprised to know that roughly 70% of all the psalms are actually considered to be psalms of lament. So it's very common. Uh, and the, actually, the entire book of Lamentations is one giant lament. Uh, surprise, surprise, by the name. Um, but uh, there's a lot for us to learn in the Lamentations. Um, Christina Fox, in her article, uh, The Way of a Lament, she says that it's not a word we use much these days. In fact, lamenting is an art that we don't often practice in Western culture. Rather than express our emotions, we tend to hide them, distract ourselves from feeling them, or even pretend they don't exist. 
When difficult circumstances cut into our lives, we are likely to seek out false saviors to rescue us. We bury ourselves in work, entertainment, or a pint of ice cream. We might even take things into our own hands and attempt to control our circumstances. We'll do anything but face the pain and heartache we feel. Yet scripture is filled with lament. Habakkuk lamented the coming judgment on Israel. The book of Lamentations is one long lament. Our Savior cried out a lament in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Psalms of Lament are poetic songs that give voice to the sorrows and pains of God's people. The laments in Scripture do more than just voice painful emotions. The Psalms of Lament in particular go further than just releasing pent-up emotions. They are more than mere catharsis. Within themselves, these Psalms are a theology, a doxology, a form of worship. They are reminders of truth. They are exercises in faith and they are transformative for the believer. And there's much more that we can learn from them. And, there, and I believe fullheartedly in all of that. There's something about our Western culture where we no longer really practice lamenting here, do we? Um, and so typically we take on what she says. We kind of bury our, our feelings, our emotions down deep inside us. I look for ways to uh, either numb the pain. You know, we can go to drink or, or just to keep ourselves busy, our mind off of what we're struggling and facing and just not even mentioning it, hoping that the pain dissolves and goes away. Um, but if you've ever done that, you probably know that that doesn't work. Um, lamenting is an incredible, incredible way of really worshiping the Lord, as it were. And it doesn't sound like it's worship when you're crying out to God and, and just kind of just laying your heart out before him in a sense of, you know, this is what's going on with my life. Why aren't you helping? Um, but it is an incredible way of drawing our hearts back. A lament is a way for the soul to outwardly process the inward struggle while maintaining and deepening one's faith and love for the Lord. And I know in my own life, in, the, in times where I've hit low points and struggles in my life, and finally, you know, I finally lean over into uh, the way of lamenting, as it were. Uh, it's in those moments, you know, you cry out to God, why is this happening? Why is this going on in my life? Why, is, why aren't you changing anything? Almost calling God out in a sense. But as you're doing that, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit comes within you and reminds you of God's goodness. And so you're, why isn't this happening? And if you look through the, the, the Psalms of Lament, you see the same structure, really, as they're crying out, wondering where God is, where is, his, um, where is his hand of protection over their life? Where is his hand of blessing over their life? But as it, as it continues to wind down, you see, but, the words but oftentimes are in there, I will trust in you, for I know that you are good, and I know that you're in control, and I know that you're mighty, and I know that you're good. And so as you begin to process these things and outwardly express your emotions to the Lord, it's just almost as if the Spirit is reminding you of God's goodness in the process, and it just deepens uh, your faith and love for the Lord. And so um, I just encourage us not to pen up those emotions. If we're not going to share them with people, at least share them with the Lord <laughs> and get them out there in the open with him. Now verse 2 uh, in, in chapter 5 here says that, it says the words, fallen no more to rise as the virgin Israel forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. Now it's important to understand too guys that neither the prophet Amos or God is really taking any uh, delight in the pronouncements of doom over the nation of Israel. Really they're more like mourners at a funeral, if it were. If you recall, uh, the Lord is the bridegroom and the nation of Israel is his bride, just as we are, you know, the bride of, of Christ. And so you've got to remember that that's the heart of the Lord here. His people are his bride. And, and so he's seeing their destruction fall upon them. It's, he's not taking delight in this. He is mourning their fall and grieving for what lies ahead for an unrepentant nation. But this says that they will fall with no one to lift them up, with no help in their time of need. You see, God brought the, the nation of Israel to a place uh, where they had no one else to rely on except him. 
Right? They had no one else to rely on except for the Lord, and that's exactly what he wanted. And so they couldn't look to Egypt for help. You know, Egypt was just like a broken reed, it tells us. Uh, and they couldn't look to Babylon for reprieve. And so they were utterly uh, alone in their destruction. And, and so they, they had a God uh, that, was, uh, that was all they really needed. All they ever needed was the Lord. And he was there for them. But they forsook him and they turned from his word, they turned from his law, and they turned their backs on the covenant that they made with him. And so you have to remember too, in, in chapter 4, they had all these trials that the Lord puts them through and they never returned to him throughout that. You know, they, uh, they went without food. Uh, they went without rain for their crops. And so they, they immediately went to the storehouses for their extra food and the storehouses came up moldy. So they had no food in the storehouses. Uh, and so they went back to their, uh, all their crops, but it says that the plague of locusts had destroyed all their crops. So, so some of their number even perished in the process. But none of this turned them back to the Lord. They, they continued to chase after their false idols. Um, the idols of Baal were often, uh, the god of Baal they believed was a uh, god of the elements as it were. So they continued to pray to Baal for rain rather than to the Lord who creates it. And they were stuck in their ways. They were overrun by the desire of their sin. And so now uh, we see that their doom is certain. Now we look at verse 4 in chapter 5. It says, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. So in the midst of Israel's pain, when they faced famine and hunger and thirst, um, and they have fallen, what's the answer to where they're at right now? What's the answer to their destruction? What's the answer to their heart? What's, what are they to do? It says right here in, uh, in verse 4, Seek me and live. And so the Lord is saying, Just seek me. You seek me. Turn back to me. And if you turn back to me, you're going to live. Just turn back to me. And the Lord will give you life, and life more abundantly, he tells us. And he's going to lift you up out of the dust. And as Psalm 40, verse 2 says, that he will lift you out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire, and he will set your feet on solid ground and steady you as you walk along. This is what God wants to do for you. This is what he wants to do for the nation of Israel. And this is what he wants to do for us today. He's here to raise us up out of the mud and the mire of our sins and set our feet upon the rock. And it's important to understand, guys, that no one else can do this for you. No one on earth can do this for you. Not your spouse, so quit looking there. You know, not your best friends, not your parents. No one on earth can lift you up out of the mud and mire of your sins and set your feet upon solid rock. Only God can do that. So we just need to come to a place of surrender before the Lord and give it to Him. But for some of us, this can, this can take a very long time, can it? To come to a place of surrender before Him. Right, we fight and we fight and we fight and we can just continue to fight it. And we fight him and we fall. And we finally, we hit rock bottom, right? When there's nowhere else to turn or nowhere else to look but up. And finally we say, Lord, I surrender. Seek me, he says, and you will live. And you're going to find out it takes the nation of Israel to hit rock bottom before they finally listen to the prophets that the Lord sent to them. 
But it also says, don't go to Bethel, don't go to Gilgal, don't go to Beersheba. All these places, uh, it's important to understand, guys, in the context here, is that these were all places of idol worship. They had set up these, these uh, uh, different places where they would worship these false gods uh, in these uh, cities that are, that are named here. So God says, don't go to these places of idol worship. You know, don't seek life and salvation there. And why is that? It's because it says in verse 5, it will come to nothing and it will lead to captivity. And so if you don't seek the Lord, you will remain a captive and your endeavors will come to nothing. And so there's, there's really an important lesson for us this morning is that it, it, we are not to seek out the idols of this world. You know, idols like, such as selfishness and, and pride and lust and power, the praise of man. When we seek those things out, you, we, we're going to become captive to this world, right? When we seek out the desires of this world, we become captive to them. And that's, what does Scripture tell us? That where our treasure is what? That, that there our heart will be also, right? And so if your treasures are bound up in the things of this world, our heart are going to be enslaved to the things of this world. I love Romans chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 20 here. It, it, it talks about going from slavery to slavery. It, it sounds ironic and weird, uh, but I love the way Paul explains this, starting in verse 20. It says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time of the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So wonderful. And so he's telling us that this, being captive to this world and being slaves of sin, it leads, as it tells us in Amos, to nothing and to death. And he's not just speaking of, of a physical death, he's speaking of a spiritual death, which is far worse. It's separation from God for eternity. But he says that when we have been set free from sin, we become slaves of God. And I know that we have this uh, kind of this weird uh, context or this understanding of the word slave because it does have a negative connotation to it. You know, when you're a slave, you're no longer your own person, right? You become the property of another uh, and you're under their control, as it were. Uh, but that is exactly what happens when we become saved. We become slaves of God. We are now under control of the Holy Spirit. We're no longer our own, thank the Lord. You know, we're not under the power of the flesh or our own will, but under the power of the Holy Spirit. But the wonderful thing about being a slave to God is that there is kind of an irony there is that it leads to eternal life, which is what? Which is freedom. So when you become a slave to God, you become free. And so as children of the Lord, we're no longer slaves to the world. And, we're, and there's, there's no salvation in the things of this world. So we can seek out the, the Bethels, the Gilgals, the Beershebas of our own life, the idols of our own life, uh, for this salvation, for this reprieve from the hardships of life, but we're not going to find it there. All we're going to find, again, as Amos says, is the captivity to the world and our efforts leading to nothing. But when we seek out the Lord and become slaves of God, it says it leads to sanctification, forgiveness, and freedom. So when we find ourselves in darkness, when we find ourselves facing hardships and adversities, when difficulties arise and we fall, where do we turn and what do we do? And again, the answer is stated two times in three verses here. Seek the Lord and live. And it sounds relatively easy, right? And the answer is relatively simple. It's not a difficult concept to grasp, but actually doing it can be very difficult in and of itself for us. Again, whether it be pride or deceit, we tend to hold on and, and try to pull ourselves up out of the mud and the mire of our, on our own accord rather than giving it to the Lord and seeking Him. 
And so if that's you this morning, if you can resonate with that, with that concept, if you're in the midst of trials and difficulties, and if you're in the mud and the mire of your own sin, I think the answer for, for you this morning is to seek the Lord and live. Let's continue in verse 8. And then right here as we continue here, just notice the power of God that is explained here. And, you know, perhaps can you wonder, you know, can he really raise me up out of this? You know, I've been in sin for so long. I've been in the mud and the mire for so long. Can he really raise me up out of it? I've tried for years with no success. Well, let's see what it says here. Number, in verse 8, He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns deep darkness into morning and darkness the, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that the destruction comes upon the fortress. So again, can he do it? <laughs> you bet he can. You bet he can. There's no, there's no doubt that he can. But how do, we knew that, how do we know this though? As Amos explains, he created everything. He made everything. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing about creation. And we have a lot of it around us here to, to be in awe of. Is when you look at it, it, it points us directly back to the Lord and his might and his power. It's a wonderful reminder that God is in control and that he can handle everything that we cannot. Psalm 95 verses 4 through 5 says, In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And as we see here that Amos points out, he made the Pleiades and the Orion. And if you're unfamiliar with these, there are constellations. And these constellations depict God's creative wisdom and power. And if you're wondering why he looked to the constellations for his reminder of the Lord, um, it's important to know that Israel was guilty of worshiping the stars rather than the maker of the stars. Isn't that incredible? They saw the wonderful things in the constellations, the wonderful things in the, in the heavens above them, and they worshiped them rather than the God who created them. It's just, it's just mind-boggling, but we can do the same thing in our own lives, right? We begin to worship things outside of God, even though God is the one that created it or brought it forth. And so for us this morning, it's really a reminder of how great and how mighty and how wise our God is. And because of that, we can trust that he can raise us up out of the mire and out of the darkness of our lives. And how big, how just, how, just how big is our God? You know, how big is he? Well, scripture tells us that he's so big that the entire universe can be measured by the span of his hand. Think about that. With all our technology today, and looking at the galaxies and the universe around us, and, and there is believed mathematically to be an end to the universe out there somewhere, but we're not even close to, to finding it or recognizing it or, or understanding it. And it tells us that in scripture that he holds it in the span of his hand. From here to here, you know, that's the universe to God, and yet we can't even grasp it. It's just absolutely incredible. And if so, if you can measure the universe by the span of his hand, surely <laughs> plucking you up out of the mire of your own sin is no difficulty for the Lord if we let him, if we surrender. But if you need more evidence or more encouragement of God's ability to raise you up in verse 8, it has more for us. It tells us that God turns deep darkness into morning. These are exact polar opposites, right? Darkness into morning. And what is emphasizes for us this morning is that even in your circumstances that may feel like the deepest darkness in your life, that God can turn that darkness into the light of morning. In this part of Amos, it really reminds me of the, of the well-known psalm in Psalm 23 that says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
And it's such an incredible thing. And so if you're walking through a valley of the shadow of death in your own life this morning, it's important to understand that our God is so big that he can take that darkness and turn it into light, just like nothing. And he can do anything. It says in verse 10, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. This is probably uh, why the prophets weren't really well liked. Oftentimes they were even killed for their sayings because they were speaking the truth to a nation that didn't want to hear it. Uh, In verse 11 it says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So in all these possessions that the people of Israel had stored up from themselves, it says, you know, these houses of hue and stone, beautiful houses, these pleasant vineyards, uh, they're not going to get to enjoy them because of their sin. Right? They've stored up all these wonderful treasures on earth, as it were, but because their hearts were far from God, now they're going to be taken into captivity and not be able to enjoy their things. All the pride, the selfishness, the wickedness, was seen by the eyes of the Lord, and so they're going to be held accountable for their actions by the hand of a righteous and just God. And that's what we see with the impending judgment of the Lord and the promised judgment and the fulfilled judgment is that God is righteous, right? And he's also faithful. If God promised these things but then said, you know, I love you guys too much, I'm not going to do it, he's not faithful. And then that way, if he's not faithful, we can't take the rest of his word uh, seriously. That he is faithful. And thank God that he is. But once more, God gives them an answer to their affliction and their upcoming captivity in verse 14. Very similar to what we've already discussed. He says, seek good and not evil that you may live. In other words, seek the Lord and live. Once more, three times in in just a few short verses. Seek the Lord and live. And so if you want to find reprieve from your hardships, it says, seek the Lord. If you want to have life and have it abundantly, seek the Lord. He's saying, stop pursuing what is evil. Turn from it. Run from it. Seek the Lord. And he says, I will be with you. And I think that's such encouragement for us today that God promises that if we turn from evil and if we run from sin, that he promises that he will be with us. Right? We don't have to go at it alone. And I think perhaps that for many of us, we may fear that if we turn from sin or the way that we're living or lifestyle, whatever it may be, that no one will stand with you. Perhaps your friends will abandon you, may even make fun of you or persecute you for turning from what you're doing. And so you might feel fear that you'll be alone, but God says, I'll be with you. And so the question for us this morning, is that enough for us? Is it enough that God will be with you? Or do we, or do we seek more from other people? Do we seek out the, the help or the the, re, the uh, reprieve from other people rather than from the Lord. When no one else will stand with us, when no one else understands, is the Lord enough for us? Because he does promise that he's with us, and it tells us in Romans that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he, it says that he's never going to leave us or forsake us. Which is incredible, because time and time again we leave and we forsake the Lord, but he never leaves or forsakes us. And if he's with us, what more do we need? 
He is with you. He is gracious to you. Continuing in verse 16, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, In all the squares there shall be wailing, in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing, those who are skilled in lamentation. In all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Speaking about a future day of the Lord here now. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and no light. As if man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. He's explaining the, the day of the Lord as if, you know, you meet a lion in the wilderness, and so you're trying to flee from him, and finally you think you're going to get away, and now a bear appears. And so you're trying to run from the bear, and you get into this house, and you think you're safe, and now there's a serpent, it bites your hand, and it kills you. And it's essentially saying there's no hope for you in the day of the Lord. He says, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Now, this next few verses are very important for us this morning. He says, I hate, this is the Lord speaking, I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offering of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So the Lord is saying here, I don't want your feast days. I don't want, he says, I don't want them. No, it's important to understand that uh, they had several feasts that they celebrated in Israel. And pretty significant and amazing, too, is that all of these feasts, whether the people understood or not at the time, is they actually all directly pointed to Jesus in some way. But these feasts were times where they would come and they would commune with the Lord and they would celebrate with the Lord. And so these people are coming to fellowship with the Lord, but they're living blatantly sinful lives in the process. So it's as if they were living a lie within their relationship with God. It's in, in essence, they were two-timing the Lord is what they were doing. Remember, they're the bride of the Lord, and yet they're uncommitted to him. And so they go out and they worship these other idols. You know, it's, it's like an affair of sorts, as you will, right? They're going out and worshiping these other gods on the side, coming whenever it, you know, con- it's convenient to them, showing up. It's like really when they do these feasts or whatever, it's like showing up to the family dinner like everything's all right, you know? Showing up with the Lord like we're good to go. Uh, everything's fine. Um, you know, but you think about what kind of relationship is that? And God is saying, I don't want your feast days. He's saying, if you're going to consistently live as if we're not in a covenant relationship, I don't want your assemblies. I don't want them. You're not even committed to me. Why would I want this thing from you? I'm not going to accept your sacrifices. But then he says in verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs. He doesn't want their worship. Now it's important to understand that he does want their worship. He wants our worship, but not in this way, not in this capacity, not in this two-timing, uncommitted, covenant-breaking worship that Israel was pursuing. And so the question arises that what does God ultimately want with Israel, and what does he ultimately want with us? And I think it's relatively simple. He wants our hearts, right? But he wants it fully. He doesn't want an uncommitted, half-hearted, half-hearted heart. (laughs) He wants it fully committed to him. So, and, and it, it makes me wonder too, why would we come to worship, right? Why would we come into the very throne room of the Lord 
if our hearts and minds are a million miles from him? Why would we do that? It's completely disrespectful to him. It reminds me of the words that Jesus spoke about the Pharisees during his ministry. He said, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They're uncommitted to the Lord. They're doing it for themselves. See, the nation of Israel was uncommitted to the Lord. Only in times, certain times would they go through the motions and make it seem like everything was okay. But they were completely uncommitted. So what is made clear in the statement is that God wants our heart. And when you think about that incredible truth, I, personally, I cannot wrap my mind around that. That God wants my heart. He wants my dirty, dark, and broken heart. Why would he want that? But he does. The God of the universe, the God that created everything that we see around us and beyond everything that we see around us, wants your heart. I mean, that's just absolutely humbling and amazing. We're created in his image and his likeness. And time and time again, we've turned our backs on him, and yet he continues to desire the fullness of our hearts. And again, guys, it's important to understand, he's not saying, you know, don't come to these feasts at all, right? He's saying this because he didn't want uh, to be with them when they were uncommitted. He's essentially saying, don't come if you're going to come like this. You know, come with your heart rendered to me. He wanted a real relationship with Israel, and he wants a real relationship with you and I. But a partially committed heart is not enough for God, and it, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. A full committed heart to God, I still can't imagine how that's enough to him, but it is. But a partially committed heart is not even close to what God deserves. I mean, if we're having a hard time grasping, imagine how you'd feel if your spouse or significant other or whatever is partially committed to you. You know, I'll be there during the holidays. I'll be there. I'll show up from time to time. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know where I'll be this week. You know, I might be out and about. Uh, you'll hear from me from time to time. And I'll check, on, check in on you. And, um, you know, I'll send gifts here and there. If that was you, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't that make you sick? Wouldn't that just, I don't want it. You know, I, why would you show up to, to this, this feast? I don't, I don't want you here. And, and so when we put it in that perspective, you can understand why God is so hurt by this. And that's the thing, too. It's, it's more than just an anger or a disassociation with the people. He is absolutely broken. You know, we, we think about ourselves in that situation, how much that would tear us up, and then you look at God who loves exponentially more than we could ever could, and so the hurt is infinitely worse than we could comprehend with such a turn from Him. Guys, He wants our hearts, and He, and he wants our hearts fully rent to Him. Fully. Not partially, not holding on to some hidden minor sin in your own life that you think would be okay. He wants everything fully given to him, fully committed. And so then as we close this morning, God points out in verses 25 through 27. He said, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Rhetorical question with an emphatic no. <laughs> in verse 26, you shall take up Sikketh your king and Kion your star god, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus as the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So he asks them, did you bring me sacrifices while you were in the wilderness? Did you bring me sacrifices while I was protecting you? 
Then he says that the whole time that they're in the wilderness, that they carried around these physical idols, right? While in the wilderness, while God actually brought them into the wilderness, while God was providing for them in the wilderness, they continued to have these little idols in their backpacks that they would take out from time to time and worship. While the Lord was showing himself constantly to the nation of Israel. It's mind-boggling to me that every day, right, they received manna from heaven. You know what manna actually means in the ancient Hebrew? It means, what is it? So when they saw it coming down, they said, manna, what is this? You know, I don't know what this is, and God said, it's food, eat it. (laughs) You know, you need food, you want food, here it is. And so it kind of stuck, it's manna. Um, But he always gave them more than enough, right, because it says that you could take out what you need, but if you take more, it'll spoil before the day is done. It tells us that their sandals for 40 years never uh, never got worn out in the wilderness. Uh, he, He led them by a cloud of dust by day and a pillar of fire by night. He brought water for them out of a rock tells us that he protected them for 40 years and then meanwhile during all of this they have idols in their backpack and they worship them from time to time but again every time I look at Israel and point the finger and just say how dumb are you you know I look at my own life and say wow that's kind of scary how much in line that can line up with me at times right that God has provided everything in my life far beyond everything anything I need and 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 so many blessings right a wonderful family wonderful church body to be a part of and fellowship with a beautiful uh, house and and a community that we are a part of and um, and yet in the midst of that we can I can turn my heart from God and worship other things and worship myself or whatever it may be. Turn my heart, it's not fully rent to him in the process. It's very similar to the nation of Israel in the wandering desert, right? You know, they were taken out of an exile, right? They were set free because of the Lord. And then they immediately forget who it was that set them free and begin to worship these false gods, these idols in their life. And sadly, because of Israel's continued infidelity toward the Lord, it says that they would be carried off into exile. And it does happen. But in between all these things that Amos is saying, do you see, and this is my prayer this morning, is that we see the heart of God and what it's saying. He's saying, return to me. right? Come back to me. Return to me and live. Three different times. And God, he didn't have to say that, right? He doesn't have to keep repeating it, but he does. And I think that, is, that speaks even more of the very character and nature and heart of God, that he keeps saying it, come back to me, return to me and live. And they're like, no, it's okay. And he says, return to me and live. No, you know, <laughs> you know, flee from evil and do good. Return to me and live. You know, he just keeps saying it, keeps asking them to come back. It shows that he is, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to place this judgment upon them. He doesn't want to send them off into exile with the Assyrians. But they're not listening. But he's just saying, return to me and live. Get rid of all your idols, all your torn allegiances before coming to the feast. Rend your hearts fully to me and live. The same could be said for us today, right? Don't, don't come to church with your idols sitting in the car or in your backpack, wherever they may be. You know, don't come into a solemn assembly, as it were, um, acting like everything's okay, but leaving your idols at home and going back to them when you're done. That's not what he wants. Right? Don't come into his presence while not being fully committed to him. It's not what he wants. There's such a thing as wrong worship to the Lord. And he wants our hearts fully rent to him before we enter his throne room. So leave the things of this world, wash your hands of the sin that has held you down, and return to the Lord. Right? He can lift you up out of the mire. He can lift you up out of the mud of the sin in your life that is holding you down. He can lift you up, it says, and set your feet upon a rock and steady you as you go along. 
right? Let's return to Jesus. He's so good to us. We look at the cross, all all that he's done for us, and he continually, in the midst of our our turning from him and and falling short of his glory and, and denying him, he still says, return to me, return to me, come back to me. And live. I mean, that's an incredible heart of a, of a Lord and a Savior that I'll never fully comprehend, but I'm fully, fully thankful and fully grateful for. So let's return to Jesus, guys. He's so good to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time together. Lord, we thank you for your word and the example of the nation of Israel, Father, for us this morning. Lord, I just pray for all of us here. If there are hidden idols in our own life, maybe they're even unknown to us at times. We can be so far into it that we don't even recognize it. Father, just reveal them to us. Lord, and I just pray that we would just have the humility and the trust to just lay them aside, be done with them, turn from them, that we could just come to you with our hearts fully rendered to you, Lord. That we'd be a people, that we would be a community, a nation, of hearts that are fully rent, fully committed to you, Lord. You've been fully committed to us from the start. You've been faithful from the very beginning with your covenant relationship to us. And Lord, it's us who has dropped the ball time and again, and yet you still call out to us to return and live. Lord, I just pray for those who may be struggling with that, that they don't want to surrender or give up the things in their life, Lord, that you would just speak to their hearts today, Lord, and just 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 reveal yourself to them in a new new way that would just just blow them out of this world, Lord, and that they would just drop whatever it may be that they're holding on to and just turn to you, run to you and live. We thank you for this time together, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And I just want to lift up um, our brothers and sisters throughout the world, those that may be facing persecution today or maybe in the hands of the enemy, Lord. I just ask that you would be with them, grant them strength and courage and that you would reveal yourself to them furthermore, and that their faith would deepen with you. And God, I just pray that we are a people who come to the feasts fully rend- with our hearts fully rent to you, and ready, just fully committed into loving and serving you. In your name we pray. Amen.